and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to gather as your people to come and to worship you and hear your Word. We thank you for the gift of being able to gather this morning, for being able to gather in, in freedom in this place you've given us to meet and worship. And Lord, we ask that you'd come and work in us this morning. You would humble us to receive your word, that you would take the truth of your word, that you'd plant it deep in us, and that you would bring fruit in our lives for your glory, Lord. And I pray that I would preach your word faithfully and clearly, or that Christ would be exalted, that we would look to him and the beauty and the mercy and the grace and the kindness that you've shown to all who've repented and put their faith in him. We ask you to work in us this morning for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how often are you tempted to think that your plan is better than God's plan? You think back on, on your life, however long it is you, you've lived, and think about a moment in time when you had an idea about a plan for your life, a plan for the future. It might have been about education, it may have been about marriage, about family, about where you'd live, about where you'd work. You had an idea of, of, of what it was that was going to go on in your life and a, maybe a timeline and goals and none of those things are bad. It's not bad to plan. It's not bad to draw out goals. It's not bad to have dreams and aspirations. But how often can we look back and think that we had in our minds the right idea of a plan for our life, but God was so gracious to cause those plans to fail because He had an even better plan in our lives. Sometimes those plans were bad and they were wrong. And they were sinful. We were on our hell-bound race, so to speak, of what we just sang this morning. God was so gracious to open up our eyes to see that those plans dishonored Him and instead impressed upon our heart a new path, a desire to please Him and to worship Him. Sometimes God, He frustrates our plans as a way to draw us in more deeply to depend on Him and rely on Him. Well, that's how it is with the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. As we've been looking at his life, we see God's grace to him to frustrate his plans. He had a plan to marry Rachel. He had a plan to build a family through her. And God frustrated Jacob's plans as an act of, of grace. Jacob, he had a plan for his life. He had schemes. He used manipulation and deception to accomplish his plan. And those plans even seemed to be established there for a moment, but God intervened. God frustrated his plans, and God was teaching him that Jacob would have to rely on God alone to bring about his blessing. Wasn't that the way that it often works for us as Christians? That God works through our failed plans to draw us closer to him. God works through our failed plans and frustrating them at times to show us His character that we would more deeply rely on Him. Well, in today's chapter in Genesis, Moses, he gives the nation of Israel their national history, their, their family history, going all the way back to Jacob, showing them where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. But in giving these birth stories and showing the beginning of the nation of Israel, not only would they learn their history, which is important for them to know, but most importantly, they would learn about the character of their God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to start off in verse 31 and finish off that chapter and go into chapter 30 
this morning. If you turn in your pew Bible, if you take that pew Bible in front of you, if you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you this morning. Use it now, this morning, during the sermon, and then take it home with you, read it, connect with one of us here. We'd love to talk with you more about the God of the Bible and what he's done through his son Jesus. That's page 24. If you're in your pew Bible this morning, we're going to start off in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Genesis 29, 31, page 24 in your pew Bible. Let me read beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Then she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, 
God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. We see in this passage the beginning of the nation of Israel. What I want us to see in this passage this morning, the main point of the sermon, if you're taking down notes, it's this. We see God's character as we consider His blessing. We see God's character as we consider His blessing. Well, the content here at the end of chapter 29, it fits right in with the beginning of chapter 30 to form a whole unit of Scripture. We see the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. God had promised descendants to Jacob that his descendants would outnumber the dust on the earth, and we see God's faithfulness to fulfill that promise here in this chapter, even though it comes in a really unexpected manner. And here in this section, Moses, the narrator of Genesis, was telling the people of Israel their history as a nation, as they learned about their beginnings and and how it was that they were born of God, born of His grace alone, they would also learn more of what the God of Israel was like. In other words, learning about their history of their nation would teach them about the character of their God. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want us to consider three displays of God's character. The first display of God's character we see in verses 31 through 34 there of chapter 29. The first display of God's character, God's justice displayed. That's what we see in verses 31 through 34, God's justice displayed. We noted last week that chapter 29 is, is not a romantic love story of Jacob finding a wife, Rachel. What stands out in that chapter actually is Jacob's rejection of Leah. That's what we see immediately here in verse 31. Jacob did not love Leah. We read that the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now that can sound pretty strong to hear that, that word hated, but I think we can interpret that word hated by what we see right before it in verse 30. He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So so essentially, I think what Moses is communicating, she was unloved. She was the unloved wife of the two. Now, Jacob had not expected to marry Leah. He worked for seven years as a bride price to marry her sister, Rachel. But Jacob was deceived. He was tricked into marrying Leah, and he didn't recognize until the next morning that Laban pulled a switcheroo. And then he had to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel. So the result here, he had two wives. We'll get to polygamy a little bit later. Sometimes you hear this and you think, well, is this commending polygamy? Certainly not. Look at what follows. It is a disaster. Nothing positive in terms of their human mistake coming out of this. God himself, though, bringing good out of that mess. Now, the result, he had two wives, There was strife between those two sisters, and there was strife between Jacob and Leah. It seems like Jacob had not forgiven Leah for her deception as well. Well, Jacob rejected Leah, but God did not. In verse 31, we see that God opened up her womb and not Rachel's. God had a plan. God was going to bring about sons. He was going to continue on a redeemed lineage, and his plan was to do that first 
through Leah. So like Sarah and like Rebecca before her, Rachel was barren, meaning she was physically unable to have children. Again, when you hear barren, don't just think they were having a hard time getting pregnant, right? That is difficult. That is certainly an act. That's a a situation of suffering, an experience of suffering. What we see here with barrenness, physically unable to have children. Well, in the midst, midst of the mess of Jacob's family, we see God was at work the whole time, fulfilling his promises, accomplishing his plan. And the surprising turn in the story is that God himself was behind Rachel's barrenness. We continue on, we look here, God had his own plans. He had plans to work through Leah. We see in verses 31 through 35, God's plan to give Leah four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, each of these four names, they have a meaning. It's important for us to consider the meaning of these four names because the the names help us experience and know the affliction that Leah is suffering because of not being loved by her husband. Her desire for the love of her husband, it's embedded in all four of these names. They're, They're names, a reminder of her longing and her affliction. So we can see that when she was afflicted, she cast her griefs on the Lord. She did that in the names of these sons, kind of this ongoing casting of her affliction upon God, which shows us, by God's grace, she was a woman, at least at that time, who who prayed. Let's look at these sons and their names. In verse 32, we see the name Reuben. And in Hebrew, that looks like the phrase, look, a son. The name's explained by Leah, saying that God looked at her in her affliction. Look there at verse 32. She gives the explanation. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. God, God looking, meaning he, had, he, he has compassion. He, he sees. And she hoped that, that God, giving her a son, would bring about the, the love of Jacob, her husband. But it doesn't. In verse 33, the Lord gives her a second son, and she names him Simeon, meaning the Lord has heard. This name given because she says there in the verse, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. It's important to see here again, what would the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel learn about God? Well, the Lord hears the cries of his afflicted people. God gives her a third son there in verse 34, and she names him Levi. And the name Levi means attachment. Now, the tribe of Levi would go on to become the the tribe of priests of the nation of Israel, a very important tribe in the life and worship of the nation of Israel. And this name would be significant in their role as they were attached to the Ark of the Covenant. But the name given here at Levi's birth, it it really might be the saddest of all of the names given here. Her, Her desire stated there, now this time my husband will be attached to me. After bearing three children, she's longing for her husband to be drawn in and attached to her. But sadly, he wouldn't be. A fourth son there in verse 35, she names him Judah, which means something like, God be praised. It's a different type of name from the other three names. This isn't a name given in reference to a desire that she had for the love of Jacob. Rather, instead, Leah praises God here. 
she recognizes that God is the one who opened up her womb and gave her four sons. And it's like she's resigning herself in that moment to this difficult affliction that she was experiencing and instead choosing to praise God. She could not be confident in the love of her husband, but she could be confident in the love of God. God saw her. God heard her. And there's resolve here with the birth of Judah for her to praise the Lord. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder, do you praise God even in the midst of affliction? Do you praise God when you recognize the good things He's given you? It's hard in affliction. A lot of times our, our eyes are drawn to what God hasn't given us or what we're presently praying for and, and waiting for. And it's good to wait and be patient and be reminded, but it's also good to remember that God, and I've said this before, God is often doing 10,000 things in our lives, and we might recognize three of them. That's how I've heard it put, right? That God might be doing 10,000 things in our life, and we might only recognize three of them. And maybe we'd recognize more if our eyes weren't often so fixed on what we perceive God isn't doing in our lives. Here with his fourth son, Leah resolves herself to, to praise God. She still had desire. She was still afflicted. She was still in a place of sadness and longing, a very difficult place to be, not knowing the love of her husband, but she could praise God because God was showing her His love, and His love was enough. While Jacob rejected Leah, God didn't. We considered last week that through Leah came the very important tribe, the tribe of Judah, a royal line. And as you follow on the, the history of the Old Testament, who came out of the line of Judah in the Old Testament? King David, royal line. King Solomon. And then eventually in the New Testament, the royal line continues with the King of Kings, King Jesus. King Jesus, the Messiah, coming out of the lineage of Leah. Jacob rejected Leah, but God did not. You see, God's choice, His sovereign plan, according to election, is that the Messiah, the serpent crusher from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, would come from Jacob and Leah. God chose Leah to bear the seed of promise. God chose Leah to move the story of redemption forward. God's sovereign choice in election will stand. Well, for the original audience, hearing about the birth of these four sons, it would tell them about their origin, right? They, they would learn certainly about their, their history, and it would tell them more about where they came from, that they were born of grace, but consider what it would tell them about the character of God. They would know our God is a God who sees, He hears us as His people. When we cry out to Him in pain and affliction, He sees and He hears and He acts for His glory and for the good of His people. Notice that the first four words of verse 31. When the Lord saw. That, that word saw, it's important because when the Lord sees, what that means is He acts. He acts in line with His character, meaning He acts in injustice. He saw Leah was hated and afflicted, and He acted. Jacob did not deal justly with Leah, but God did. Leah was the outcast, and God showed grace to the outcast. One person put it like this, God characteristically works 
for things or people that humans reject. The downcast, the afflicted, the troubled, the oppressed, and the rejected. In this story, we see God's character that God sees the brokenhearted. God hears those who cry out to Him in pain. Brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder, what do you do with your pain? With physical pain? With emotional and mental pain? Relational pain that you might know and experience? What do you do with your pain? Leah was taking it to the Lord in prayer. A wonderful model for us. We often sing about it in this hymn. We've sung a lot recently. What a friend we have in Jesus. And it says this, Oh, what grace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Could you see your prayer life this week as a gift and as an opportunity? Take your needs, take your pain, take your cares and your burdens, and to cast them all upon the Lord. It's good news. It's comforting for Christians that we don't have to bear that pain. Through Jesus, God has told us that He is with us always, that we're never alone. What that means is that Jesus never grows tired or weary of bearing the burdens of His people. The question is, do we grow tired and weary and cease to pray? Let's help each other pray. A great ministry to one another as a church, get together and pray together. Get together and meet somebody for, for lunch and pray with them, pray for them. After the service, as you're talking with someone, ask them how you can be praying for them. And then right there, say, hey, why don't I pray for you right now? Because the chances are I'm probably going to forget about this later. Let's pray right now while it's on my mind. I want to lift this burden up for you as a ministry of encouragement. Brother and sister and Lord, the good news here, what we learned about our God, what we need to know about our God and our character this morning, we can turn to Him with our pain. And when His people cry out to Him, He sees and He hears and He acts. Isn't that how God worked in our salvation? For all who are here this morning who've already repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, Our testimony tells us that God heard our affliction, that He pursued us. He reached out to us as the outcast. He looked upon our helpless state and led us to the cross. That's what we sang this morning. God displayed His justice and His love at the cross. Jesus Christ suffering in our place, taking affliction on Himself for our sake. By God's grace, He led us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins. By God's grace, all who've cried out to Him in repentance and faith have been rescued from the affliction of sin and slavery to sin. And as those who belong to Him this morning, may we have confidence and be reminded that God sees and God hears His people when we cry out to Him. He is a God of justice. There is no one like Him. We see a second display of God's character in chapter 30 in verses 1 through 21. Verses 1 through 21, the second display of God's character, we see God's grace and power displayed. God's grace and power displayed. We see in verse 1 that Rachel envied her sister. This envy, it led to conflict between the two sisters. And what we see unfold is something that seems like a competition 
between sisters. Leah, she's without the love of her husband, and Rachel is without the ability to have children. And a battle kicks off between the two sisters. We see that Rachel's envy had also caused strife in her marriage. Look at her outburst to Jacob there in verse 1. Give me children or I shall die. Having children was consuming her. It was painful. It was clearly on her mind. And she had an outburst of anger. And Jacob's reply is no better. In anger, he says in verse 2, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And even though Jacob's words are delivered in anger, and that's wrong, and he shouldn't be talking like that, his words do contain truth. We see truth displayed in this passage. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who opens up the womb and creates a child. That's true with the four sons we just looked at. It's true with you, and it's true with me. Everyone who's here this morning who's been born, you were God's idea. You were God's creation. You were born at exactly the time that He wanted you to be born in. He was born in you were born in the exact way that God wanted you to be born in. He is the giver of life. All conception is under His control. Every pre-born baby in the womb is put there by the Lord Himself. That's why we value all life. That's why we value life in the womb, because we understand it comes from God. It belongs to Him, not to the mother. It belongs to God, because God is the one who created that child. And if you have a child, then God has given you a gift to steward, to train, to, to raise up for a time for a short season. But we see the truth here. That child belongs to God, His creation, His design, His invention. He is the giver of all life. So even though Jacob delivered it in a very poor manner, and even a sinful manner, there is truth there in that statement. But Rachel wasn't trying to hear that. Her envy leads to her giving her maidservant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, telling him, Go into her that her maidservant would have children on her behalf. Now, doesn't that sound familiar in the story of Genesis? Remember what we read back in Genesis chapter 16. When Abraham's wife Sarah was barren, she insisted that her husband Abraham take her maid, Hagar, as a second wife. And Abraham listened to her voice and moved forward. So the same situation happens here with Rachel and Jacob. Jacob already had two wives, and now he gets a third. To be sure, the suggestion of obtaining a child through a maidservant was a normal practice in that time in the surrounding nations. It was a way to maintain continuity in a family line whenever there was barrenness. So whatever children may have been born to the second wife would be counted as the child of the main wife. That was a normal cultural practice in the surrounding nations. So polygamy, it was a worldly solution to the problem of barrenness. But just because that was normal in that time, and just because it offered a way to maintain continuity in a family line, doesn't mean that it was right. See, there's plenty of things that are culturally acceptable today that we know are not right according to God's Word. You see, God's design for marriage, while it would certainly be more articulated more clearly with the revelation of God's Word in the Bible, there was already clear enough revelation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, sufficient enough to show us that marriage is created by God and designed by God to be between one man and one woman as a permanent union so long as they both shall live. 
That was the design that God had for marriage. It was the norm for marriage. It wasn't the cultural norm at that time. So don't look back at the Bible and think, well, the Bible just couldn't imagine scenarios like we deal with today. Because it wasn't even a cultural norm in that time just to have one wife. Plenty of people deciding they would go about life their own way, according to their own plans, and live in the way that they so desired for their own personal gain. But it wasn't commended by God. And in fact, we see the result of it here. It's condemned. God, I think clearly through the, the story of Moses, though he doesn't stop and offer immediate moral commentary, he does present this in such a way to show this was a disaster. It was a mess. It was a decision made that lacked faith. Rachel had other options at her disposal besides the option that she took. Namely, she could have cried out to the Lord in prayer, but she didn't do that. She took things into her own hands and crafted plan. Like Sarah before her, she, she takes things into her own hands, and her plans, they yield a son. In verse 6, there's Dan. Then another son in verse 8, Naphtali. Now, the names that, that Leah gave to her sons, they reflected faith. God was given the credit in the birth of those four sons. God was given the credit as him seeing and hearing her affliction. But the names that Rachel gives here, they do not reflect this faith. The name Dan means judged or vindicated. So she was stating that God was vindicating her cause. Almost like, see, God's on my side, not, not your side, Leah. Naphtali means wrestlings, directed at her wrestling, her conflict with her sister. And she states, almost in a way I think poking, that she is starting to catch up to her sister. Almost like, Leah, can you hear the footsteps? I'm right behind you. I'm catching up to you. This is a race. Game on. This is a competition I'm stepping up to. These names, they, they don't give glory to God. They're more about Rachel and her view from a human perspective of her situations. The names she gives her sons point to her thinking that God was vindicating her and taking her side in the struggle with her sister. Now, not to be outdone, Leah jumps back into the competition. She had ceased bearing children since the birth of Judah. So she too decides, I will give my servant to Jacob as a wife. So Jacob has, count them, four wives now as Zilpah, Leah's servant, is given as a wife in verse 9. And she ends up matching Rachel's servant with two more sons, Gad and Asher. The name Gad meaning good fortune and Asher meaning happy. Now, these names don't sound like her first four sons. These names don't reflect faith either. They're like a poke at her sister. Uh, what fortune I have, how happy I am to more sons. She's exalting herself, kind of like gloating over her sister. Well, it seems like Leah has turned from a season of trusting God as if she forgot the way that God has already worked in her life. Or brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder how often you're tempted to forget the way that God has worked in your life. I wonder how you're tempted to not pray as much, to not come and ask God to work in your life as much. The story of Leah shows us it's possible to go from a place of trusting in God to then trusting in yourself, uh, to, to falling into disobedience, and that's what was happening here. It's an important lesson for us to guard against forgetting the work of God in your life. Your Sunday mornings 
are an important opportunity. Sunday morning worship commanded in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 10. It's also a wonderful gift to us, a gift that we get that's unlike any other time we meet with God during the week individually. On Sunday morning, we get to remind one another of who God is and what He's done. I loved hearing your voices sing just a while ago. It was in line with the commandment that the Apostle Paul gives to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we're not singing Taylor Swift songs and things like that in church because we're singing songs about who God is and what He's done. We're singing about the blood of Jesus Christ and the gift of grace we've received in Jesus Christ. It isn't a concert for you to sit back and consume and listen to and nod your head to. It's a chance for our musicians to lead us to sing to one another because as we sing to one another, we remind one another about God's work, about His finished work in Jesus Christ. It's a chance to build one another up in our confidence in God so that regardless of how you come in this morning, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, which let me say we are so glad you're here this morning. If you're not a Christian, when you listen to us sing, what you're going to hear us sing about is who God is and what He's done in Jesus. That's a primary way we minister to one another as a church. We comfort one another and we encourage one another based on truth found in Jesus, a true hope in who Jesus is and what He's done in laying His life down to die on the cross and in resurrecting from the dead. One way for us to encourage one another, show up to Sunday mornings ready to sing, ready to minister, ready to worship God. Our ministry to one another in this church centered around reminding one another of God's Word. Well, I wonder, Oakhurst Baptist Church member, who have you encouraged this week? Don't be stingy with your encouragement. Reach out and encourage others. It's a primary ministry in our church. If I were to ask you what's a ministry you have in this church, I hope all of us at some point would say, well, I have a ministry of encouragement to other members of this church. And encouragement isn't just about pointing out good things that people have done. I think encouragement, primarily Christian encouragement, is centered around the good thing God has done in His Son, Jesus, and encouraging each other with how much we can find confidence and comfort in Jesus. Well, the first solution that Rachel had to her barrenness, it attempted to utilize a polygamous relationship. There's a second way she seeks to operate there in verse 13. Another solution, it's kind of odd, mandrakes in the field. Now, Reuben, who may have been in his mid-teens by now, apparently found some mandrakes in the field and brought those to his mother, Leah. And a mandrake was a Mediterranean plant. And most likely that the root of this plant was what was taken, and it was viewed as an aphrodisiac that would result in having children. So it was a type of ancient fertility drug. Right? With the mandrakes, they may have been viewed with superstition in ancient times, an ancient culture, but specifically, and we look scientifically now, there, there's no miracle property to this plant that would lead anyone to get pregnant. It was merely a cultural superstition. So Rachel offers a deal to Leah. Give me the mandrakes, and you get a night with Jacob, which shows us just how terrible the situation and marriage really was. Now, Rachel wanted children, Leah wanted the love of her husband, so it sounded like a good deal, and they put their feud aside for a moment to strike a deal that suited both of their interests. But the deal doesn't work out the way that Rachel wants. Not only does she not get pregnant, at least not right now, not by mandrakes, not only does she not get pregnant, but Leah, after parting with the mandrakes, she gets pregnant. Again, a reminder, children come from God. 
In verse 17, we read, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Apparently, Leah was praying again and asking God for a child, and God gave her a fifth son, Issachar. And then in verse 19, a sixth son, Zebulun. Issachar's name related to wages, pointing to the, the reward she received from God. And Zebulun's name, meaning honor. She may not have found honor with her husband, but God honored her. Additionally, God gives her a daughter, Dinah, in verse 21. She's mentioned here because she will play a significant part in a later story in the book of Genesis. But the point here in all these births being listed is that human solutions will not accomplish God's plans. Polygamous relationships, surrogate motherhoods, mandrakes, they would not be the answer. It isn't even the night that Leah purchased to be with Jacob that ultimately delivered what she wanted. It's only by God's power and by His grace that these children come. God listened to Leah, and she conceived. Human plans, human solutions rather, cannot accomplish God's plan. His plans only accomplished by His grace and by His power. Finally, in verses 22 through 24, notice a third display of God's character. Verses 22 through 24, we see God's compassion displayed. To hammer home the truth once more that God's the giver of life. In verse 22, Rachel, a barren woman, conceives. She exclaims in verse 23, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, I consider, again, barren women can't conceive. Mandrakes won't help with that. But things changed when God remembered Leah and listened to her. It's a turning point in this story. While Rachel first turned to polygamy and surrogacy and later to mandrakes, evidently she stopped that and she turned to trust in the Lord. In the beginning of verse 22, we see that turning point, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. That phrase, God remembered, it was there in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It's covenant language. It first appeared when we see that God remembered Noah after the flood, and when God remembered Noah as when the floodwaters receded. That, that word remembered, it communicates God's covenant faithfulness. When God remembers he acts in faithfulness for the good of His people. God remembered Rachel. He moved toward her. He listened to her. And God gave her a son, Joseph. His name meaning add or, or may he add, which God eventually does with another son later on, Benjamin, who would become Jacob's twelfth son. By God's grace, Joseph would go on to play a prominent role in the story of the Bible, he occupies the end of the story of the book of Genesis, and God uses Joseph to save the rest of Jacob's family from famine. Well, there's a bookend here in this section. Look back in chapter 29, verse 31. In 29, 31, you see the phrase, the Lord opened the womb. And you see it again here in chapter 30, verse 22. Same phrase, the Lord opened the womb. We see those bookends, it's making an overarching point. The overarching point of these births is that every one of them is a supernatural act of God. 
The people of Israel could look back and recognize their existence as a nation is entirely a result of God's might and His power and His grace and His compassion on them. With Jacob and Leah and Rachel, there was deception, there was bitterness, there was a lack of forgiveness, there was conflict, there were underhanded dealings, there was manipulation, there was relying on themselves, and it's in that setting, that dark setting, that God's faithfulness is demonstrated in Him and Him alone birthing the 12 tribes of Israel, forming a people for His glory, fulfilling His covenant promise to Abraham, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them descendants that would outnumber the dust of the earth. In other words, God is always at work, sovereignly at work over all of the darkness and chaos in the world. We can look around right now and see darkness and chaos, and sometimes you're wondering, is God working? Is God at work? I had to talk to one of my missionary friends this past week from the International Mission Board who was forced to leave where he'd been for 13 years, his wife and kids serving in Moscow, knew the language, knew the culture, part of planting churches, incredibly fruitful ministry in Russia, ended like that, out. By God's grace, hopefully in two weeks he'll be here. Talked to him, I said, listen, you're back in the States, you didn't plan to be here, but God had a plan for you to be here. Can you come and bless us? We'll give you the pulpit April 10th, so pray for that. He's planning to be here April 10th, and we're going to hear about him, and I think we're going to hear a testimony, because sometimes you see that darkness, that chaos, those unexpected, those messes, terrible scenes of evil there with Russia invading Ukraine, and I look at my friend, and I think about the church that Chad and I got to visit a number of years ago, and wonder, what's going to happen with all of this? It was such fruitful work. God, how could this possibly be according to your plans? And even as I study this week, I'm reminded God is sovereignly always at work, especially over the darkness and the chaos in the world. Human beings intend things for for evil. We see that in the story of Genesis. But God is always at work for His glory and for the good of His people. Nothing will hinder Him from fulfilling His promises. Nothing can stop His plans. Learning about the history of their nation, it taught Israel about the character of their God. And so it is with us in the church this morning. We see God's character as we consider His blessing. Christian, meditate on God's blessing. What I mean by that is His greatest blessing. The blessing that He's given spiritually to every believer. The greatest blessing He's given is Jesus Christ, His Son, and a knowledge of Jesus through repentance and faith in Him. See, the story of Leah and Rachel, it shows the Lord seeing and hearing and remembering those who are in a lowly estate. And so it is with what God has done in Jesus. Through Christ, God has acted to save the afflicted, to save the outcast, to save the lowly, to save all who would cry out to Him in repentance and faith. And for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, our testimony as those who've trusted in Him for salvation, is that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. At the cross, Jesus stood in our place as a substitute, one who was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted for our sake. Our greatest blessing came as Jesus willingly laid His life down to die on the cross, willingly laying His life down to pay the penalty of the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in Him. Three days later, God raised Him from the dead. 
That's proof that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay for the debt of sin, the sin that we owe God because of our sin against Him. Jesus Christ, risen today, reigning from His throne in heaven, extending new life and salvation and forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents and believe in Him. In just a few minutes, we'll hear testimonies of four people coming to get baptized, all having a testimony of grace of God saving them and working in their life. And if you've come this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, you might have come in this morning not knowing God, but you do not have to leave that way. And we would love to talk with you more about that. I'll be at one of these doors afterwards, talk to one of our members, one of our staff about the greatest blessing you can know from God, knowing His Son, Jesus. Well, God has accomplished His plan in the lives of every believer. It's a plan that's all of grace. The testimony of every believer we sang this morning, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. That's our testimony. It's one of confidence in the Lord. And may we meditate on this blessing that we've been shown in Jesus. And as we see God's character displayed, may we trust God more. May we praise Him more for His justice, for His grace and power, for His compassion that He's displayed in Jesus' His Son. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we ask that You would help us to trust You more as Your people. God, we ask that You would lead us to praise You more, to recognize Your character as we consider the gift of Jesus Christ and His blood shed for us on the cross. God, we praise You for Your grace and Your power. We praise You for Your justice, Lord, that You sent Jesus to die and pay the penalty for our sins, the compassion that You've shown to all who've trusted in Jesus, rescuing us from our affliction. And Lord, we ask for grace to trust You more. Lord, we ask that You would grow us in our confidence in You. Help us to walk more deeply in worship in obedience to service in you, and fill us with joy as we consider the gift we've been given in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.